Well, continuing in our series on the book of Acts, today we're coming to Acts chapter 13, verses 14 and following, which is Paul's long sermon in Antioch. And uh, this is a great idea for us to grasp because it shows the responses to the gospel, the responses of your friends and loved ones when you tell them the gospel. So here's how it looked for Paul, and here's how it shall look for you. And we have to start with this because sometimes sharing the gospel is hard. This comes from a blogger named Destiny. And she says, I left the church because I felt socially isolated. I did not like the response I would get when I told people I was a Christian. All my fellow Christians and churchgoers know what I'm talking about. And their reasons are likely the same as why they stopped attending church. It's the way someone's hair stands up at the simple mention of God or the Bible. I felt as though I were bothering people if I even mentioned anything about church, God, or Jesus. Spending my whole life trying to talk about my Christian life in a world where Christianity is frowned upon can become exhausting and also very discouraging for other people like me. If the people around you keep telling you that something you're passionate about is not interesting or worth mentioning, it can be extremely detrimental to the way you view that thing. And you may not want to talk about it anymore or be asked about it. Well, everybody who's a Christian knows what she feels like. You all know what it's like to try to talk to people about things that are important to you in the Christian life, things that they frown upon. And so we all feel that. Well, Paul is going to feel it too. Uh, One quick thing to pay attention to as we talk about this text. Paul is going to go to a place called Antioch in this part of Scripture and... um, I forgot to turn my phone off. (laughs) Um, And you might be confused because we've already talked about a place called Antioch in the book of Acts. So if you look at the arrow on the right side of the slide, that's Antioch, which is the sending church. You know, that's that church of Gentiles that's flourishing and thriving. And that's where it all begins with the missionary journeys. And then if you look at the arrow at the top, that's pointing to another Antioch. And the problem is there were these kings named Antiochus, and they kept naming cities after them. So Antiochus wants this city, Antioch, and this city, Antioch, everything's named after him. So uh, the lower right-hand arrow, that's what we call Antioch of Syria, and that's the sending church, the flourishing church. The one at the top is Antioch of Pisidia, and the great cities of Galatia are Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And so Paul is going to visit all of those cities in the next uh, couple weeks. uh, And I just have to know, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe are in the area that we call Galatia. And after Paul finishes his first missionary tour in Galatia, he's going to write the book of Galatians. And it's the first book of the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote. All right, so we're going to be talking about two Antiochs. So don't let that throw you off today. All right, Acts 13, verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. That's the Galatian Antioch. And they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. All right. Now, Paul is going to address Jewish people in a synagogue about Jesus. Remember, the Jewish people not so long ago killed Jesus. They don't necessarily like this message. 
But you're going to see that Paul addresses ten important things that they can all agree upon. And this is a good strategy for you. Always try to find points in common with the unbelievers around you. So here are ten things that they all agree upon. So number one, from verse 17, Paul says, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. You can imagine them all saying, Amen, Amen, here, here. And number two, he not only chose them, he exalted the people when they dwelled as strangers in the land of Egypt. Yes, yes, hurrah. Number three, and with a high arm, a strong arm, big arm, he brought them out of Egypt. Yes, 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 all agreement. Verse 18, and about the time of 40 years, he endured their manners in the wilderness. Yes, he did. Amen. Here, here. Verse 19. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. Yes, he sure did. In verse 20. And after that, he gave them judges about the space of 450 years. Yeah, that's right. Good arithmetic there. 450. We're, we're there. Until Samuel the prophet. Oh, we love Samuel. Yes, until Samuel the prophet came. The last judge, the one who anoints the first king, Samuel. Yes. And the eighth item of agreement in verse 21. And after that, after the judges and Samuel, after that, they desired a king. And God gave to them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Yes, the first king. We love Saul. Verse 22, the ninth point of agreement. And when he had removed Saul, God raised up unto them David to be their king. Yes, David. Amen. And then the tenth thing. To whom also God gave their testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who shall fulfill all my will. And everybody's right there, all ten. Yes, this man knows what he's talking about. And then you see the little yellow line on the slide. Now things are going to go to pieces. Verse 23. Of David's seed, God has, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And now there's a chill on the gathering. In verse 24, when John the Baptist had first preached before the coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So here came Jesus when John had already done what he did. Verse 25. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he. I'm not the Messiah. But see here, there is coming one after me, the shoes of whose feet I am now worthy to unloose. So a high regard for Jesus. And this is where the polarizing takes place. The gospel is very polarizing. It was polarizing when Paul preached at Antioch. It's polarizing today when you tell your friends these things. Verse 23. Of this man's seed, God has, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And skipping to verse 26. Men and brethren children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever among you fears God, to you is the word of this salvation sent for those who dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor yet the voices of the prophets who are read every Sabbath day. They have fulfilled them in condemning Jesus. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, 
who are his witnesses to the people. So a strong emphasis on the death and resurrection. This is what is called in Galatians 5.11, the offense of the cross. And there's nothing we can do about that. The Apostle Paul says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, if I had gone to that synagogue in Antioch and just said, Carry on, carry on. If I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Because if I still spoke about the old things, then the offense of the cross would cease. That's the offense of the cross. You have to make sure when you're sharing the gospel with your friends that if they're offended, they're not offended because you're being rude and ignorant. Make sure they're being offended because of the offense of the cross. And there's nothing we can do about the offense of the cross. But if we are offensive, if we are rude and ignorant, we can do something about that. And we must. But that's not the case in Antioch when Paul is preaching. The offense of the cross comes because we are saying to every person that we ever know, your one and only hope for rescue, for eternal salvation. You have one and just one chance here. And that is, the Lord Jesus has died on the cross to pay for your sins. And that is your only chance. So you must abandon your lifelong self-flattery and self-congratulations. Say, I'm a pretty good guy. I suppose if anybody makes it to heaven, I'll make it to heaven. You're going to have to abandon that. Because the only chance you have is to go to the Savior in contrition and say, I am a bad person and I need to be rescued. It's the only chance you have. And furthermore, you're going to have to give up on the religion your family taught you to believe in love if it's different than the gospel of Jesus. Imagine Paul is in front of all those people in the synagogue and he's telling them what you've heard is okay as far as it goes, but it's not enough. And your leaders killed the Messiah. You can't follow them anymore. Stop. And if your parents don't approve of you following Jesus Messiah, then you have to ignore your parents. And if your friend group doesn't approve, you have to ignore your friend group. You have to quit all of that. You have one and only one chance at rescue here. Just one. So you better not blow this one. Of course, there's a special emphasis on the resurrection, as there always must be. A lot of people have died, and a lot of people have even died on crosses. But none of those have ever come back from death. So, in verse 32, And we declare to you good news, how that the promise which was made to the fathers about the offspring of David being on the throne forever, how are you going to accomplish that? How does anybody sit on any throne forever? Who could do that? The promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm. That's how you get a king to sit on the throne forever. He raises from death and is immortal. That's how you do it. The promise is fulfilled in this way. As also it is said in the second Psalm, that's chapter 2, verse 7, You are my son. This day I have brought you forth. And as concerning that he raised up Jesus from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said in this way, I will give you the sure mercies of David. I will never depart from you as I departed from Saul. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, verse 10, you shall not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So Paul is saying, who's all that about? How do you have any son of David sit on a throne forever? How are you going to pull that off? Oh, 
by the resurrection of that person from death. So he becomes immortal. That's how you pull it off. And isn't that what we saw in the second psalm? You are my son this day. I have brought you forth. In this case, I brought you forth from the grave. That's how you do it. That's what that was talking about back there in the Old Testament. And in the 16th psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Who is that about? They might say, well, David's the one who said it. I guess it's about David. And Paul says, impossible. Verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he died. He fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and did see corruption. It can't be about him. So in verse 37. But he whom God raised again, Jesus, he saw no corruption. That's what it was always about. By the way, as we go, did you notice that Psalm 2-7, which says, You are my beloved son, begotten son. This day have I begotten thee. Um, that was always about resurrection. Sometimes theologians get all confused about this. They say, well, uh, this, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That must be explaining how the son's existence is dependent on the initiative of the Father and on the, uh, it's predicated on the Father's existence because it says, you are my son this day, have I begotten thee? That must be talking about, you know, in eternity past, how the son has his existence in the Father. Like, no. The Apostle Paul says, that's actually about the resurrection. Uh, the tomb is like the womb. You are my son. This day have I brought you forth. Begotten thee. That's what it has always been about. God has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. That's what that's always been about. You are my son. This day have I brought you forth from the grave. That's what Psalm 2-7 is about. And again, then Paul brings it home. He's going to tell them, you have one and only one chance at salvation here. Just one. So, verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all who believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore. You see the, the intensity, the gravity, the uh, somberness of it all. You have one chance here. So beware. Pay attention. You have one shot at this. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Habakkuk said, Behold, you despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no way believe, though a man declare it unto you. The irony, of course, is Paul just declared it unto them. Now what are they going to do? Because if they turn away from it, now that it has been declared unto them, it's going to be so horrifying that they won't believe it, even if somebody tells them. And somebody is telling them. You notice the response now. And you can get polar opposites. Uh, we're calling this message the reception of Paul at Antioch and his expulsion from Antioch. We have two things happening and they are polar opposites, so different from one another. So look at the good news. Chapter 13, verse 42. And when the Jews had gone out of the synagogue, 
The Gentiles pleaded that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Hey, that was spectacular. Please tell us again next week. Next Saturday, we're here. They love it. And by the way, it's because, uh, remember when Paul says, brethren, and you who fear God? So he's saying, you Jewish people, and also you Gentile people who have converted to the Jewish religion. These Gentile people who have converted to the Jewish religion are in the synagogue listening to all of this, and they're thrilled at what they have heard. So the Gentiles pleaded that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath day as well. Verse 43, And when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. So they're very interested. We're going to follow you around. We're going to listen to you. We want to hear more. They follow. Who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Like, stay with it. What, what we told you is true. You, you, just, you just stay with us now. In verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord. To glorify uh, means to praise, to radiate about. They love the words of the Lord. The message of God to them is great. We love this message from God. They glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. A bunch of them believed. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. It's the talk of the town in Antioch. And the disciples were filled with joy. New believers as well as the apostles. But all these new believers are filled with joy and they're also filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, it reminds us that ordinary Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit uh, just by obeying the Lord, continuing in the grace of God. And I always like to remind you that there is only one criterion for spirit filling. You don't have to fast and pray. You don't have to go to special services. You don't have to have somebody lay hands on you. There's one criterion for spirit filling. And that is obedience. Are you obeying the Lord? If you're obeying the Lord, you're walking in the Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. And that's the way it was for these new Christians in Antioch. What a wonderful thing this is to see this harvest of interested people, Jews and Gentiles, both especially Gentiles. Well, now we're at the next Saturday. Verse 44. The next Sabbath day, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Everybody wants to hear this. It's going to be polarizing, but everybody wants to hear it. It's big news. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and reviling. Reviling means they're using abusive language toward them. Verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should have been first spoken to you. But since you put it from you, cast it away from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, see here, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men, the important people, stirred them up and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them out of their coasts. It's quite an opposite reaction, right? Some of the people were so glad, and some of the people were so mad, and Paul was both received and he was rejected, expelled from the city of Antioch. And by the way, when it says they expelled them out of their coasts, evidently this would have been a mob pushing him. 
So it's persecution. One group is pleading for more, following the apostles, feeling glad, glorifying the Lord's message, believing it, being filled with joy, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the other group is envying the attentions of the people, contradicting and insulting the apostles, further agitating the detractors, persecuting the apostles, and then finally expelling them altogether. Polar opposites. Do you know this is how it's going to be all through your life when you want to tell people about Jesus? You can't hate yourself if your message is being rejected. Thus it has always been. And yet, we just carry the message anyway. I'm reminding you that all throughout the book of Acts, there are persecutions, there are sufferings. And you should know that persecution and suffering is always knocking at the door for the Christian. That's just the way it is. You see in the yellow font there in the list, this is where we are today. We're, we're seeing persecutions today, but it's not, this, the, uh, it's not any different than the persecutions we've already seen and the persecutions that are still going to come in the book of Acts. Rejection and persecution are your lot in life. It's certain for you. There's nothing you can do about this. If you're going to follow Jesus, this is the way it has to be. And I know you'd rather hear different news, but I'm trying to prepare you for reality. Ted Turner says, Christianity is a religion for losers. A lot of people feel that way. Let's talk about what's happening in our world right now and what you can expect to face if you're going to stand for Jesus. And I take for granted that you all will stand for Jesus, right? There's global abuse, abusive language and abusive treatment of Christians. There always has been. Recently, during the Cold War years, we estimate that in the Soviet regime, they persecuted very cruelly somewhere between 12 and 20 million Christians. The Open Doors organization, uh, which is concerned about the suffering church uh, founded by Brother Andrew, the Open Doors organization says, North Korea persecutes Christians more than any other country in the world. Possessing a Bible in North Korea means that you'll be sentenced to a prison camp, which always includes torture, and proselyting, telling others the gospel, uh, will earn you a sentence of execution. It's a capital crime to tell somebody about Jesus in North Korea. The same organization, Open Doors Plus, the UK's foreign secretary in 2019, calculated that there are 144 governments on planet Earth that perpetrate or tolerate persecution of Christians. 144. There are only about 200 countries. So if 144 of them don't like Christians, it gives you an idea of where you stand. The same organization, Open Doors, says the inconvenient truth is that the overwhelming majority of persecuted religious believers are Christians. You say, well, we have to end religious persecution because all those people of other faiths are suffering. Like, uh, well, I'm sure 20% of that is people of other faiths. But 80% of the suffering is Christian suffering in this world. In the Middle East, the population of Christians used to be about 20%, say 20 or 30 years ago. Today, it's 5%. The population of Palestinian Christians in the last 20 or 30 years has dropped from between 15% of all Palestinians to 2%. The Christians are driven away. Again, the Open Doors organization says one in three Christians face high levels of persecution in Asia. And Asia is big. 
Their quote is, for many Christians in India, daily life is now full of fear. That's global persecution of the Christian church. George Yancey is, uh, they call him the only researcher of Christian phobia in a secular university. Uh, And he says 32% of all Americans like conservative Christians significantly less than other social groups. So like, what social groups do you not like? Oh yeah, conservative Christians. One third of all Americans, yeah, we don't like those guys. His research showed that two out of five academics, that is people in the world of education, two out of five academics reported that they would be less willing to hire someone who is an evangelical. George Yancey says they have explicitly stated that they would discriminate against a job candidate who's a conservative Protestant. Say, oh yeah, definitely, we're going we're gonna to push them back. We, we don't want them. He also says academics with socially conservative perspectives occupy lower status positions in spite of equal productivity. So you control for productivity. Are they doing a good job? Yeah, they're, they're all doing equally good job. Well, then why is the Christian stuck in a low-ranking position and the other guy got promoted? Like, nah, That's just how it is. There's also widespread religious discrimination against Christian medical students. They don't get the plum opportunities. Dr. Bernard Randall, again, now we're skipping overseas to England. In 2019, he's the chaplain for a Church of England school, and he was fired for what they called gross misconduct, and the school reported him to prevent, which is the police force's terrorism unit, and they also reported him to child welfare services as a potential abuser. His offense was preaching a sermon on identity politics. He said, I told the students to love the person even where you profoundly dislike the ideas. I suggested that they may, but need not, accept traditional beliefs about marriage and the reality of sex differences. No one should be told they must accept an ideology, either wokeism or Christianity. And so he was fired, reported to the police, and reported to child welfare services. Tim Keller was, in 2017, chosen to receive a reward from Princeton Seminary. Princeton Seminary, mind you, you know, it's a place for training ministers. But since he subscribed to ordination for men only in pastoral ministry and also for males to act as the head of their homes, the students in seminary protested about giving such a person an award like that. And so the award was rescinded. And what you have to know about Tim Kelly, he just died a few months ago, by the way, is that he was the one, he was like the ambassador of conservative Christians, and he would get invited on all the talk shows and important things. Like, he was so likable and such an intelligent guy. Like, how do you hate Tim Keller? Well, the seminary students said, you can't give him an award. Atheist influencer Sam Harris, in the world of academia, again, uh, highly respected, He said, Christians have abused, oppressed, enslaved, insulted, tormented, tortured, and killed people in the name of God for centuries. All right, if you take the word Christians away from that and add any group of people you want, Italians, uh, college professors, who do you want to put there? All of these groups have abused, oppressed, enslaved, insulted, tormented. Everybody. You can say that about every single group in the whole wide world. But 
They're homing in on the Christians. Netflix, as you might know, is releasing a steady stream of documentaries that are critical of the church about church scandals and cults. Uh, For example, titles, The Family, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, The Keepers, In the Name of God, The Sins of Our Mother, over and over again. More and more documentaries. Why are they doing this? You can make documentaries like that on college professors if you wanted to. You can make documentaries like that on every religion you can imagine. You can make documentaries like that about single mothers. But why are they picking on the Christians? Why are they doing that? Uh, Office actor Rain Wilson, who is not a Christian. uh, You might know him as, I think it was Dwight in the office, right? He posted on Twitter short time back. He says, I do think that there is an anti-Christian bias in Hollywood. As soon as the David character in The Last of Us started reading the Bible, I knew that he was going to be a horrific villain. Could there be a Bible reading preacher on a show who is actually loving and kind? Of course not. And so anti-Christian sentiment in Hollywood. Kevin Sorbo, famous for his role in Hercules, he said, my faith certainly hurt me in Hollywood. For me to get called in to read for anything, it just dropped drastically when I came out of that conservative Christian closet, so to speak. I used to read for a lot of pilots and TV shows. It's very rare now. Actress Gina Carano from Mandalorian fame, she was terminated by Disney a couple of years ago, immediately after she had an Instagram post in which she compared how the German, ordinary German neighbors in the 1930s were beating Jewish people on the streets and assaulting them just because they were Jewish people. And she said, how is that any different from modern day influencers and activists being cruel to people today who have differing ideas? Because of that, she was terminated from Disney. And um, Disney reported that they terminated her because her post was too controversial. But Disney had no similar response when other important Star Wars actors said that the president of those days, Donald Trump, was just like Hitler. Well, nobody cared about that. Too controversial? Why always the Christians are being too controversial? Back in the UK in 2010, they adopted what they called the Equality Act. Since that has been adopted as law, A couple in UK was denied approval to serve as foster parents because of their opinion on homosexuality. A doctor had to leave his position as a social worker because he would not entrust children to the same-sex couples. Christian adoption agencies have been forced to close because they refuse to allow children to be adopted by same-sex couples. A city council civil servant was terminated for refusing to celebrate a gay civil union. And a government-hired marriage counselor was terminated for refusing to offer sexual advice to a gay couple. It's always coming to that. The Christians aren't allowed to have their views. Pavi Razanin has been in the news recently. She's in Finland. She is a Lutheran doctor, medical doctor, and a member of parliament. And she's been tried now for hate crimes in Finland because of her post on Twitter, which included Bible verses, and criticisms of the Lutheran denomination for participating in a parade event, a pride parade event. And she was on a radio show and 
explain what the Bible says about same-sex relationships. And so she's being tried for hate crimes and her case is still in the appeals process. Amazing. In British Columbia, Canada, our near neighbors, a human rights tribunal held hearings recently to determine whether female beauticians should be forced to do bikini waxing on male transgender customers, including transgenders still attracted to females. Well, of course, all of this hullabaloo has ruined the reputation of several businesses. Uh, It has caused people to have to put out a lot of money for legal expenses. And it has caused emotional turmoil, enough that one company just gave up and went out of business. Since 2022 in Canada, conversion therapy has been outlawed. It is now a criminal offense. Offenders can be sentenced to five years in prison if they advise any child or adult to either curtail their homosexual behavior or reduce it or change in any way from it. That could be a five-year prison sentence in Canada. On June 16, 2015, that was a big day in the United States. That's when our own Supreme Court ordered all states to recognize same-sex marriages. When the Supreme Court did that with the full authority of the American people and the American government, they were intentionally reprimanding the Christian faith. They were ensuring that the biblical faith would now be looked at officially, that is, legally, as inappropriate. You know, if you believe that, you have freedom to believe a lot of things in America, but it is inappropriate. It's inappropriate. Contrary to civil rights, you're getting in the way of civil rights. And a threat to public good, you're kind of a scary person, if that's what you believe. Deserving of negative career and social consequences, it is actually borderline illegal to think that. Borderline illegal if it comes to things like um, membership in your Christian organization, must be heterosexual. That might be illegal. Or hiring practice in your Christian organization. We have now been officially put on notice by the United States government and United States law that if you are going to hold Bible views on this subject, you deserve to be reprimanded. And maybe it will become criminal. We'll see how that goes. In Colorado, Jack Phillips, a baker, has been tried multiple times for refusing to make cakes depicting obscene images. He advertises, whatever you want this cake to look like, I can make it look like that. He's an artist, a, a sculpture of cakes. And so people keep asking him to do obscene things. And he says no, and they take him to court. In the state of Washington, Baron L. Stutzman, a florist, lost her case in 2019 to do flowers for same-sex weddings. And so she just gave up and went out of business. In the state of Washington, Coach Joe Kennedy was fired from his high school coaching position for praying by himself silently after a game. They said he wasn't allowed to do that, so he was fired. His case eventually went to the court, Supreme Court, and he won. But uh, the emotional turmoil was substantial. Again, in the state of Colorado, Lori Smith, the website designer, was tried in a seven-year legal process, seven years in and out of court, for refusing to create website content for a same-sex wedding. She finally won just this past year, and it's over. But it was seven years 
of emotional disturbance. We all remember the problems with the IRS targeting. Well, in 2021, the IRS explained in their denial letter to a Christian organization why they were denied. It says they were denied because Bible teachings are typically affiliated with the Republican Party and candidates. That was their reason. Uh, you can't have tax-exempt status. It expressed in that letter concern that several of the group's leaders are active members of the Republican Party. So the answer is no. It's targeting. And we're not very comfortable with that, are we? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed, happy, actually, are you when men shall revile you, that is, use abusive language about you and against you. Nobody likes to have abusive language. But Jesus said, happy, are you, if they use abusive language about you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil things against you falsely for my sake, then you're, you're blessed. You're You're a privileged person. So what shall we do when people direct abusive language towards us and say all kinds of evil things against us falsely? What should we do? Well, we know from our text in chapter 13 of Acts. They spoke against those things, contradicting and reviling. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should have been first spoken to you, But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, see here, we turn to the Gentiles. And the word of the Lord was published throughout the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium. So that's where we are. Like the apostles, we should bring up points that we have in common with unbelievers whenever we can. It's a good idea. And it did work for Paul. And that's why he had such a good harvest in Antioch. Some believers will gladly come to faith in our risen Savior. And he is indeed risen. And all of those who come into faith are going to be in a lifelong Christian growth relationship with us, which is wonderful. Some unbelievers will abuse us. And what will we do when they abuse us? Will we get ugly towards them? Will we get loud? Will we get angry? No, not at all. We're going to say, well, if you don't want to hear it, there's another guy over here who does want to hear it. And you shake the dust off your feet and go to the next guy. And so we have in Acts chapter 13 a strategy that all of us Christians can count on from this day forward in bringing the gospel. You know what's going to happen, so don't be surprised. Brace yourself. Bring the gospel to the next guy. 